History is littered with examples of times people refused to adhere to warnings, even when both the danger and the likelihood were obviously high. The dangers of smoking, for example. People have smoked cannabis, tobacco, and opium for thousands of years. By the early 20th century, as people began to live longer, the adverse effects of smoking became more noticeable. In 1929, German scientist Fritz Lickink published statistical evidence of a link between cancer and tobacco. The British Doctors' Study in 1954, and then the U.S. Surgeon General's Report in 1964, released more studies and more damning evidence. But people kept smoking. Especially when you have fun-loving comedians chock full of adjectives to help sell them. Hey, boss, listen to this Newport commercial I just wrote. I expect you to write jokes, not commercials. Oh, but listen to this. Newport refreshes while you smoke, because only Newport combines menthol, fine tobaccos, and a hint of mint. Oh, that's beautiful. I've always said that about Newport. I also say Newport is more refreshing to begin with, more refreshing all the way. Hey, I'll write that next week. (laughs) Another example is mandatory seatbelts in cars and trucks. Australia was the first to make wearing a seatbelt the law in 1970, then Canada, then the UK, and lastly, the United States in 1984, and only in the front seat. And it doesn't include New Hampshire yet. If you're in the back seat, some states say it's okay if you don't buckle up. Passengers who don't wear seatbelts in the back seat of vehicles are eight times more likely to be injured or killed in a crash. Although, when you hear the arguments by those opposed to wearing seatbelts, they do make a pretty good case, like in this clip from the show Cops. Yeah, not a big fan of the seatbelt. Especially in the summer heat, it's just so not comfortable. I don't need a seatbelt. You know why? Because I'm focused. I'm right here. See that? You know why that is? I took karate for six years. I got reflexes like a cat. My sensei told me that, like a cat. I think he said cat, he had kind of an accent. Yeah, think about the seatbelt, dude. It's just one of those things that the government does to control you, you know? You don't need a seatbelt. It's just like one of their inventions that just don't make sense, like, like, like vaccines or, you know, preschool. Another example is the subprime mortgage crisis, which led to the 2008 financial meltdown. Loans were being given to people who obviously couldn't ever pay them back, but banks kept approving them. Once all the banks were doing it, it became normal, and it got out of control. Some economists warned about the risk of these mortgages bringing down the entire economy. But that could never happen, no. Not when Nobel Prize economists were saying Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae were just fine, too big to fail. In the summer of 2023, fires raged across the western Canadian province of British Columbia. 8,000 properties were under evacuation order, but an alarming number of people refused to leave. Tim Conrad was one of the lead communications professionals in those emergency operations centers. He says he's never seen anything like it, and it's only going to get worse. Today, on Stories and Strategies, How to communicate when people won't evacuate.
My name is Doug Downs. Just before we get started this episode, Spotify Wrapped came out this past week, and we heard from a, a few people actually that our little podcast was their number one for the year, which is absolutely amazing. I can't tell you how excited I was to get those notes. So thank you to Jennifer Grundler, Sissy Laframboise. Sissy, I hope I'm saying that right, and Kelly Edmond for sending us a note on that. We're going to send each a small gift in the mail just to thank them. My guest this week is Tim Conrad, joining today from Kamloops, BC. Tim, have you looked at your Spotify wrapped or unwrapped yet, whatever it's called? Yeah, I did. Uh, I'm a I'm a all over the place. Uh, 1,500 artists, over 3,100 songs. But Dave Matthews Ooh. Band finished at the top this year, uh, probably I would say again, and uh, Classified number two, and the Beatles number three. So a little bit of everything. Interesting. My number one was the Rolling Stones again. It's kind of just predictable, but somehow Enya was in my top three. Yeah. Well, I've been hijacked. That's all I'm saying is I've, <laughs> I've been hijacked. My account's been hijacked. You're in Kamloops, right? Which is part of the the beautiful area of BC's interior, prone to some wildfires in the summer. How's Kamloops today? Well, Kamloops is good. Um, it, we're, we're on probably the last day that you'll be able to say that you could go mountain biking and snowboarding on the same day um <laughs> uh, we're getting some snow i think tonight so um and i'm looking forward to getting some laps in soon so yeah it's a great great little spot uh if you're looking for uh fun to be had outdoors this is this is paradise here any time of year yeah absolutely tim you've held leadership roles in emergency management communications and post disaster engagements in some of canada's largest emergencies including the 2023 wildfires in bc's caribou squamish lillooet and columbia shushwap regions i struggle with that word shushwap hope i got through it healthcare and post secondary education during the covid-19 pandemic you received the prestigious Shield of Public Service Award from the Canadian Public Relations Society for your efforts during and after the 2017 wildfires. And your work in disasters has been described as the gold standard studied by academics across Canada and adopted in California, New Zealand and Australia. So, Tim, a lot of our listeners will know, but just give us some highlights of an emergency operations center or an EOC, what it is and how that fits in the incident command system or the ICS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, you'll hear EOC, Emergency Operations Center, quite a bit uh, when there is an ongoing emergency or a large uh, event of some sort. Um and um, there, there can be multiple EOCs running at the same time so uh, to support a response. So in a case of a wildfire, there may be uh, wildfire operations, law enforcement, First Nation, and the local government. And the local government where, is where I tend to work the most. Um, and uh, each EOC is structured using that what you mentioned there, the Incident Command System, which is an international standard that sets up the roles and responsibilities of how decisions are made. It's still a very flexible um, to match the incident, and it can grow and expand the team to match what is necessary. So there's a director that leads a team, uh, which includes uh, section chiefs uh, for planning, operations, logistics, finance and admin, uh, liaison risk, and then information, which is what communications and public relations tend to fall into is that information piece. Okay. And I know since I've taken my ICS training, and it's been some years, 
A, it's a lot like a military operation in the way that it's structured and regimentally the way it behaves. Mm -hmm. But number two, the fact the ICS is pretty much a global standard means regardless of language, regardless of culture, geography, obviously, ideas can be traded back and forth and learnings can be had back and forth. Pretty much right? Yeah, that's right. And and one of the things that I, I try to get people to do, because there is a very strict structure within it, as you say, it's like kind of military-like. Um, the, the, the important thing is to lean into that structure when you have an incident. And as you lean into it more, what happens is more space opens up so you can be creative. And um, Get, get the process stuff and get it down really well so that you can spend more time being creative on the things that you need to. Um, and and then that that allows you to really kind of expand your thought. Otherwise, you're just going to be running frantic the entire time. Summer 2023, you were part of three EOCs, which is a ridiculously busy summer. Um, wicked and dangerous forest fires for the most part with with different causes. I know that. Hmm. Recognizing, you know, there are always people who are going to stay behind, even when it reaches the point where emergency officials say, got to evacuate. What happened that summer of 2023? Yeah, we, we, um, we certainly saw a lot of fear. Um, there's a lot of fear that surrounds wildfires. Uh, there's a fear of losing everything you own, your home, your business, your community. Um, and the fear has become more significant um, as the wildfires have become more dangerous um, and destructive in the past 20 years in Canada. Um, so some people fear government overreach and some of the, some of those same people don't trust the government uh, to save their property from fire or looting. Um, so there's a strong um, disconnect uh, between some residents and their government. And that gap has widened quite substantially in recent years. I think we all know that if we've uh, been working in public relations and paying attention. And um, it's now become a problem, problem in emergencies. Um, what we saw this summer was residents who had experience and resources uh, to stay in evacuation areas, which is common. Um, we usually see a small number of residents will stay behind and, and try to fight fire. And they, they do have previous skill and, and they've done this so over decades. Um, so they're used to that. But we also had residents that didn't have experience um, and the equipment or resources to survive stay behind, uh, which was a real challenge for us this time. Because um, while we're clear that if you stay behind, you're agreeing to stay on your property and you must be able be able to sustain yourself um, for the duration of the emergency. Um, some didn't appreciate that when they ran out of food, water, and fuel, that they couldn't just go and get that um, and come back in and started to claim that. You mean the stores we, weren't open while all yeah, the fires were going on? <laughs> that's right. All Everything closes down when the, there's an actual evacuation order in place. And uh, and so um, it's it's a thing, it's a, it's a tough balance, right? Because um, ultimately the law doesn't allow governments to tell people who, that they just told to legally leave to allow them to then exit and then get back into that same area. So um, you have to remember, we're managing thousands of people that are displaced and taking refuge elsewhere safely um, and supplying all of the operations that's going on. So it's it's a big job. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a real challenge. We had uh, ridiculous amounts of things happening. And I mean, I can share more if you're, you're up for that. Yeah, absolutely. What happened? 
We saw a few residents who sabotaged firefighting efforts by removing or stealing equipment. Um, they tampered <sighs> to with save their home, their, their, to save their property. I assume. Yeah, yeah, and we're and so we're talking like removing equipment from uh, firefighting equipment from a wooden bridge that was on the only road that was in the area. Um, uh, in another case, we saw some the sabotage of, of equipment. Um, in that case, it was a water source, and uh, they were going to put a hole in the water, and uh, they thought they were going to improve the water source, but uh, by doing it the way they were going to do it, um, it was going to drain the water source. Um, so lots of strange things. We had protests on um, blockades that we had set up on highways that were closed because it was unsafe. Um, we what were they protesting? The fact that emergency officials were there? Like, what they were are they protesting? protesting? They, yeah, they wanted to. They wanted to reopen. They felt that the highway should be reopened, and they wanted to take down the barricade and open the highway. But the reality was, it wasn't safe for emergency responders to use it, let alone the general public, because the fire was on a cliff above um, the above the the highway. So it was a real challenge. Um, and and another a couple of weird ones that I. I was just, I, you know, you double take when you hear it the first time, um, but people creating fire breaks with bulldozers on both public and private lands. So we had a bulldozer go right by somebody's house without their permission. Um, we had a helicopter bucketing a fire in a no-fly zone. A private helicopter. So really strange stuff, a private helicopter. And uh, so that that halts all operations when those types of things happen. And uh, we have to make sure it's safe for responders because they're working in the air and on the ground and they need to know that they can do their job safely. How did they treat the, f the emergency officials? Was there verbal abuse of any kind that took place? Yeah, there was certainly a lot of confrontation that happened, a lot of tension in the community. Um, and this is in two locations that I was supporting. Um, we saw them, um, some people being approached, uh, emergency responders being approached by different residents um, and being quite aggressive. And um, in some cases, we've had threats of violence. And so it was a, a really um, very difficult time. And I, I take it all back, though, to like, it comes down to low trust. And the, yep. um, you know, it's kind of a mixture of information being put out and being either ignored or not received. Um, and that vicious cycle of low support uh, funding community resources that ultimately help you in a time like this. Um, and then they get angry that those resources aren't there, um, even though they were the same people that maybe were not wanting to support a new fire truck, for example, or a new uh, tool that would help them in a situation like that. You know, what's amazing. And, and I am a Canadian, so maybe I have this view of it, but there's an old joke about what do you say to 10 Canadians to get them out of a swimming pool? You say, okay, everyone, it's time to get out of the pool. Canadians are usually quite, you know, apathetic, nice, calm. We follow the laws. We don't stand up again, but this is happening in, in Canada. So then your job here amidst this turmoil is to communicate or develop communications in a way that results in the action that's so desperately needed. What did you do and what happened? Yeah. Um, I think one of the things is, is I, um, when I get into an EOC, um, I often find that, um, the, the way in which we practice, uh, in, a in that situation, when we come from a sort of a regular job and then get into that is we, 
smatter uh, communications to the scattered. Um, so it, it, and that, that approach has really failed. Um, so you're just spitting out, you know, constant communication and thinking you're getting things out to people. So oh, messages you're transmitting, transmitting, yeah. transmitting. And, and so yeah, one of gotcha. the things I do is I shift around and I, I really do build from strategy down to tactics. So I, you know, I say strategy eats tactics. Um, and, um, so for those that haven't worked in large disasters, you may not realize how little time you get in clear headspace, uh, to strategically plan. It's like a, you know, hours if you're lucky. So uh, for me, it's like late at night once everything shut down. And, um, you know, I did a lot of my planning between one and three in the morning <laughs> this, this time around. And, um, and I spent as much time as I could kind of looking at what residents were posting, commenting, saying to the media. And that's where I kind of discovered a plan that I hoped would work. Um, and, uh, it, and it really did. So what was it? Yeah, you're really curious, aren't you? <laughs> so I want to know what you did. Yeah, so I know you did TV appeals. You recorded fire officials. And yeah, they, you got some national broadcast. Yeah, out absolutely. So that's exactly it. That's one of the things I discovered right away. Was like we had a lot of local volunteer firefighters uh, that had a good, strong reputation. Um, so and they're a great source of information for what's going on in the community as well. So we paired one of our team members, one of my team members with the deputy chief, um, who was going into the fire zone daily. And he helped us understand, uh, what both the firefighters and the community members, uh, who stay behind, um, as they gather, they, they, they often gathered in the same location. So he was able to gather intelligence at those locations and help us understand what the local issues were going on. And then we were also looking for stories to tell in a real raw and rough way. Um, much like the content that residents were putting out on social media, um, those that had stayed behind. So our first video was uh, with Deputy Chief Sean Colbro. Um, he spoke with honesty um, about the challenges and appealed for cooperation. There's a small percentage of the population that's been negative. We've had some instances of threats, abuse, theft of equipment, and other unfortunate events. For that reason, it makes it very difficult for us to do our job under those kind of conditions. These men and women that have been- Then next we moved in to tell the story of two firefighters who stayed behind the front lines um, and stayed on, you know, fighting the fire uh, uh, during the time while their properties burned down. And no scripts for any of them. Um, they were all shot with lower quality video and lower very quality, raw. quality audio. Yeah, yeah, very, very raw. So, um, and that was very, very intentional. And what you you got national pickup on Canada's national uh, TV networks? What did yeah, they tell we had, you? Oh, yeah, we had just phenomenal um, uh, results from from media. Um, I've done this work for twenty years now, on and off, and. Um, never had this kind of run that we did. So over about a 10-day period, uh, we had four different national news stories on all top, uh, all the top big three um, in Canada. And they were like top stories within their, you know, one of their top three stories uh, on each of those networks. And they picked up um, the footage that we put out and the story. They used our messaging, our spokespeople, and and then carried it. And in the one case... Um, 
with the video with firefighter Darren, uh, who unfortunately his whole property was destroyed. Uh, that video they took and used it multiple times. And so it ran for over a two week period on, uh, on one particular network. So it was just uh, great results. And, uh, and you know, we, we really started to see a shift in, in how people were um, seeing the experience that 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 are experiencing the communications and starting to to understand where we were going and what we wanted uh, them to understand and and where they, we wanted them to go. And I know part of the feedback you got from the networks was that they didn't want slick produced video and audio. They they wanted the raw stuff. In fact, they had semi rejected on a different emergency in a different location. They kind of didn't go with a very slick, well produced video that was provided. Yeah, that's right. Um, they had a beautiful uh, set of videos that were provided by another service, and um, they even commented to me on a different incident. Yeah, but... yeah, and um, and they they commented to me when we were doing our media tri- tour through the area of uh, the fire on the day of the reentry. Um, a number of them came up to me, which you know, top reporters uh, within the country. And they said to me, they said, we really love the rawness of those videos. And we couldn't use any of the other stuff that you saw from this other service because it was too Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mm-hmm. so well done that it just didn't fit to be news. And so it was, um, yeah, it was quite a learning from them. I, I was surprised by that. And it was kind of like some of our stuff ended up being a little bit more raw because, um, you know, we, we were capturing those stories as they were happening. So, you know, it was, it, we didn't get to the point of actually having the relationship with the person that was on video um, to say, hey, can you put a mic on? Um, so it just it just happened. And, and then they allowed us to use that. How, how other channels? I mean, the television is one thing. Radio is another. Can you use newspaper or our websites effective social media? Do people lose power in some of these emergencies? What are some of the other strategies slash tactics, I guess, that can be used? Yeah, so I that's a that's an area that we also um, did something different than I've done in the past. Although it went back to um, some of my earlier work uh, twenty years ago, um, and like everything we did with was with intention. So even those video briefings, when we did them, I dressed to match the audience. I made mistakes, and I was empathetic uh, um, when we weren't able to tell people what they wanted. So, um, and we did see that immediate shift in sentiment, but we still hadn't gotten where we wanted to. And um, so I rolled this, uh, rolled the dice on a huge gamble. Um, like I said, we had a lot of tension and, and it was, um, you know, one of the people I worked with said to, you know, to me, watch your back. Cause I, I was somebody that was on television, on YouTube all the time. And so everybody knew me wherever, wherever I went. And um, you know, it said something to me that this person had never said that to me in all the years I've worked with them. Um, and so what we did was we went, right into the belly of the dragon. This fire in particular in the shoe swab looked like a dragon when you look at the map of it. And we started to immediately meet people as they re-entered. So um, we did a little bit of a test before at a farmer's market that was just on the outskirts. And then we started by when we people came in, we met them on the road, gave them information. And then we took it another step and we went to all of the little community stores, gas stations, restaurants, set up a, a little booth outside and, and exchanged information. So got information from them and did uh, a bit of an environmental scan. 
And then also we're delivering education information. And it was really neat to see it kind of shift people. And I had one particular gentleman that it took three times for him to even come over and say hi. And so eventually he did. And he told me, I was so angry at you the first time I saw you. I didn't, I couldn't come over and talk to you, but we eventually did get him over there. And, and that helped, uh, to you know slowly build some trust and we were able to show that we were we were human and we were trying to help them perfect tim thanks for this appreciate it doug thanks a lot if you'd like to send a message to my guest tim conrad as i say his website and his other contact information is in the show notes stories and strategies is a co-production of jgr communications and stories and strategies podcasts if you like this episode to do us a favor share it with one friend Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. 